0: Recovery Elevator, episode 380.
1: You always think you're the only one that goes through what you're going through until you actually start talking. Once I started talking, I was realizing, wow, there's so many people just like me.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. I'm so glad to be here with you all. On today's episode, we have Shireen. She's 46 years old from Arizona and took her last drink on September 10th, 2019. Way to go, Shireen. Listeners, I've got exciting news. We are currently building an alcohol-free photography class that should be open for registration in August and launch in September. Not all the details are worked out yet, but this should be a six to seven week course meeting once per week with weekly photography assignments and accountability and connection built in. This class is geared towards the beginner photographer and anyone with a smartphone or a nice camera in their phone can take this class. Yes, we will give some recommendations for nicer cameras if you want to pick one up, but again, your iPhone or Samsung should do the trick. And let me tell you the priority of all of our courses. Number one, connection. Number two, learn how to make art with your camera. We are using the camera as a tool for connection, just like how we use the ukulele. And for those of you asking, yes, there will be another ukulele course in the future. And we're also going to be adding a weekly or a monthly ukulele lesson chat in Cafe RE. And that's going to start in June. Before we get any further, let's hear from a great sponsor, Exact Nature.
2: We are thrilled to partner with Exact Nature because we are committed to the same goal. help you quit drinking. Exact Nature's safe, all-natural CBD-based products can aid your alcohol-free journey. If you struggle with sleep, cravings, mood swings, and high stress levels, learn more about how Exact Nature can help you at exactnature.com. Recovery Elevator listeners will receive 20% off their orders by using the code RE20. That's RE20 at exactnature.com.
0: I want to say thank you to all our Cafe RE chat hosts. You guys do an amazing job. Okay, listeners, this is cool. Walmart pulls back on stocking cigarettes in stores and will begin phasing out sales of cigarettes in many U.S. stores. And now this is part conscious, but more economics. It's not the best use of shelf space anymore. There is a trend happening across the globe of ditching poisons, such as alcohol and tobacco. In fact, tobacco... Kills almost half a million people, about 480,000 people each year in the US alone. Holy shit. And with alcohol, I've read this stat several times that an estimated 40 to 60% of all occupied hospital beds are anchored to alcohol. Holy shit. But we are starting to wake up. Okay, let's get started. Listeners, we've got a fun one today. What is sober? What is sobriety? Let's define this, or attempt to define this. And can we define this? Let's try. Sober. First off, this word can be exchanged with alcohol-free, AF, whatever, but for this episode, I'm going to use sober. And when I say sober, at least for this podcast, I'm referring to alcohol. That's the drink that put me behind the mic. Now this topic, especially in the rooms of AA and 12-step programs, can be somewhat divisive, and I can see why but it really shouldn't be. And I think we'll find out that arguing over what is sober and isn't is a silly and almost harmful endeavor. In fact, there are even nicknames for what type of sober you are. My recommendation is don't get too attached to any idea of what sober looks like, because at the end of the day, it's not really about the substances, behaviors, or actions, it's the freedom that you have from them. Do your absolute best not to judge others for their definition of sober, Because as we're going to find out, it's not as black and white as you think. Now, quick side note about judgments. When you judge others, and this is the universal boomerang effect, you've just judged yourself and created more separation. In terms of sobriety, I've heard some straight up silly stories about people being told they aren't sober because they drink kombucha, they drink NA beers, or they had beer-battered fish and chips for lunch. That's a true story. Never mind the fact that a ripe banana has the same amount of alcohol as kombucha and a hamburger bun has nearly triple that. Are you not sober if you eat bananas or a hamburger or a chicken sandwich? I've heard stories of sponsors declining to work with sponsees unless they A. Reset their sobriety clock or B. Stop taking a substance that may be keeping them alive or is helping them. When I first quit drinking and began going to AA, I thought sobriety was no alcohol, no drugs, no substances, no pills, prescriptions, no mind-alterating substances, no MDMA, mushrooms, and that list keeps going on for a while. But welcome to the real world, where there are apparently 50 shades of gray alone, and this applies here as well. So here are some things I've heard from sober people as to what sober is. Keep in mind this is I'm sober and, it's not I'm sober but. Here we go, I've heard. I'm sober and I drink kombucha. I'm sober and I drink NA beers. I'm sober and I eat dishes that are prepared with some form of cooking alcohol. I'm sober and I smoke cigarettes. I'm sober and I use chewing tobacco. I'm sober and I drink one to ten cups of coffee a day. Now please don't come at me with coffee not being an addictive drug and I love my coffee. I'm sober and take ADD meds, aka amphetamines. These could be Vyvanse or Adderall. I'm sober and take antidepressants. I'm sober and I use cannabis. This has also been coined California sober. I'm sober and I take benzos for my anxiety and sleep. I've even heard this called NH sober or New Hampshire sober. I'm sober and take opiates for chronic pain. I'm sober and I take sleep meds ambient is one that comes to mind i'm sober and i pull out my eyebrows i itch i pick and pull i'm sober and i use plant medicine ayahuasca psilocybin ketamine mdma i'm sober and i have to sexually relieve myself constantly i'm sober and i eat a fuck ton of ice cream i'm sober and i love to shop i'm sober and i leave this planet while doing breath worker tai chi i've even heard people say i'm sober but have a couple drinks a year, a month, or even in a given week. So as you can see, defining sobriety is a fool's errand. We can't do it, and we shouldn't do it. In fact, it's dangerous to do so. If we did, we'd separate, isolate, and disconnect ourselves even more, which is the initial problem. We're also ignoring the environment we have to live in when trying to define sobriety. We unnecessarily beat ourselves up for not hitting our internal definition of sober. In a meeting one time, I heard a guy say that he wasn't sober because he was taking sleep meds. It was consuming him. Now, I don't know exactly what his relationship was with these meds, but sleep is fucking important. I had to take AF sleep ease and Tylenol PMs for probably four to six months when I first quit drinking. If you don't get good sleep, the foundation of your sobriety is compromised. So those are some Newtonian ways to define sobriety, which come at it from a lens of sacrifice or staying away from something. Here are some better ways to define sobriety, I feel. Sobriety is freedom. I heard this from a guy named Aaron. Sobriety is everything. I heard this from a gal named Rachel. Sobriety is living authentically. Sobriety is not being a slave to a substance, behavior, or action. We call it addiction, but in Latin it was called addictus, which means slave to. Sobriety is you living your best life and how you want to live it. Sobriety is living with a connected head and heart. Sobriety is being able to recognize beauty, art, and appreciate sunsets. Sobriety is a different vibration. Sobriety is pure hope. Sobriety is you taking off the chains. Sobriety is you meeting you. Another way to say that is sobriety is you reconnecting with you. Sobriety is a manageable life. Sobriety can be downgrading addictions. This is one of my favorite lines from Sarah Heppola's book, Blackout. Okay, if you remove alcohol and aren't ready to say goodbye to everything else, go slow, take your time and listen to your body. In fact, I don't recommend you quit alcohol and 15 other things at the same time. It'll be too much of a shock to your nervous system. In fact, what happens there is your body will create chemicals to make you feel uncomfortable so you go back to the previous substance. It's crazy stuff. There is no right or wrong way to do this, and there is no generally accepted definition of sobriety. So then what? Do we have to accept them all? Well, just like it's a good idea to accept all skin colors, it's the same with defining sobriety. What really matters here is that the person is trying to make a change, even if that change is a mental thought form swirling in the brain and consists of nothing else. It's still something. It's the desire to be the best version of you, regardless if you use other substances. It really doesn't matter. So I'm going to make this simple, listeners. At Recovery Elevator, we accept all versions of sober. We accept all versions of you. Now, before we hear from Odette and Shireen, let's hear from a better way to get help. Let's hear from BetterHelp.
2: This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market. Mental health matters. And as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate, as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. You all know that I'm a big proponent of therapy, so I highly recommend you check it out. Simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H E L P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com forward slash elevator. Thank you, Paul, for a great introduction. And Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Shireen to the podcast today. How are you, Shireen? I'm great, Odette. How are you doing today? I'm really. Great. And I'm really happy that we are doing this. I know we've been communicating for some time now. So thank you. Thank you for your patience. And let's get right to it. When was the last time you had a drink? Okay, so my last drink was September 10th, 2019.
1: So my sobriety day is November, or excuse me, September 11th.
2: And how are you feeling? It's been it's been some time now.
1: Oh, my gosh, I feel amazing.
2: Oh, I'm excited to hear what got you here? But before we do that, just let us know a little bit about yourself, Shereen. Let us know where you're calling in from. What do you do for a living? Do you have a family? What do you do for fun? Just tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay, sounds good. So I am 46 years old. I live in Santan, Arizona, which is about 30 or about 40 minutes east of Phoenix. It's a real small little town. I have a husband of almost 32 years. We're high school sweethearts. We have a 24-year-old son, Andrew, and a 12-year-old daughter, Izzy. Um, I have two dogs. I have mother-in-law and father-in-law who live with me. I am what my daughter likes to call a lunch lady for a school, a junior high school. I make food for about 700 kids every day, 7th and 8th graders. And I think that's, that's about it about me.
2: You obviously have heard the Adam Sandler lunch lady land song. Oh yes. I love it. I love him. (laughs) I love him too. That song always makes me smile. Oh, that's awesome. We have a lot in common. I also have two dogs and two kids and it's, it's always just great to connect with other sober moms in my personal opinion. So like I said, I'm glad we're doing this and let us know when you started drinking Shireen, you know, when did your relationship with alcohol develop in your life and how it progressed Any red flags, just a little bit about the evolution of your relationship with alcohol and what got you to quit and be here with us?
1: Oh, gosh. Okay.
2: So, yeah, I can recall drinking as far back as about
1: three or four years old. I remember my mom letting me try her drinks. I would always sneak whatever she had lying around, probably around the age of eight or nine. uh, We used to steal alcohol from my foster dad. By then I was put in foster care. I would steal alcohol from him by the age of 12, started smoking pot with my foster brothers. Um, But really, alcohol was definitely my first love. I continued drinking through most of my high school years um, until about the age of 15 when I met my now husband. Uh, We were high school sweethearts. We actually got married at 16 and 18. And I didn't start drinking again. I stopped completely until... Until about after I had my son, I was 24 when I had him. So around the age of 25 or 26, I kind of casually started drinking again once he was born. And that was just more to deal with, you know, deal with life, deal with all the trauma I'd never addressed in my life. It didn't really, I would call myself a casual drinker during that time uh, with friends, you know, not, not so much secret yet. By the time my husband and I moved to Arizona about fourteen years ago, uh, that's really when I started drinking excessively. By the time we moved here, my son was twelve, and we we got pregnant with my surprise beautiful daughter Izzy. And by then, I was, gosh, close to forty years old, so I was much older. And again, it was a surprise to get pregnant with her. So I just started drinking every day, pretty much from that point on. So about 2008 is when it got excessive. Um, I started drinking every day to deal with just life in general. I would sneak it. My husband always knew I was drinking, but I would I would hide bottles, you know, throughout the house, so that way he didn't realize I was drinking a lot more than I let on, t- you know, to him. Um, I would hide it in my closet. I was notorious for being an isolator. I would hide in my closet and drink when my son would go to bed. And this is all, you know, before I got pregnant with Izzy. By the time I got pregnant with Izzy, I had no problem stopping for those nine months. But as soon as she was born, I of course went right back to it as soon as I could. Around the time, let's see, I think she was about five or six years old. It was discovered that I had some heart issues. And so I had uh, my first open heart surgery at the age of 39. At that point, I can remember being in the hospital and just thinking, I can't wait to get home so I can drink again. Even though I just went through this major life, life trauma of having an open heart surgery, I still just wanted to get home and drink again. Of course I did, as soon as I got home, started drinking again. About a year and a half later, 2016, I suffered a stroke. And at this point I was still drinking all the time, every day. They still to this day don't know that my drinking caused my stroke. I kind of believe that it probably played a big part in it. Um, so I had the stroke and then I had a second open heart surgery, the age of 41. So by then, 41 years old, I've had two open heart surgeries and a stroke and I'm still drinking. I, as soon as I get home, I still continue to drink, drink all the time, drink in, you know, in quiet and isolation in my closet. And it was about 2017 that my husband brought home an AA big book. And I thought, well, what the heck is he going to an AA meeting for? And then, of course, he told me, well, I got it at an Al-Anon meeting. And that kind of smacked me across the face. And I realized, oh, well, shoot, he's probably going because of me. So I took that big book that he gave me and I kind of looked at it a little bit and thought, nah, I don't really have a problem with this, even though deep down I knew I did. So I, I started to look into AA a little bit, went to some meetings. I went, met some friends, met some people there. And then my husband started going to a program um, at our church called Celebrate Recovery, CR. So I started going to that with him. And that's very much like AA, other than it's a it's a Christ-centered 12-step recovery. So very similar principles of AA, other than, you know, our higher power, my high, higher power is God, definitely and that's more of the celebrate recovery uh, part of it. And so by then, I definitely realized that I needed to do something about my drinking. And I started to um, slowly try and stop, but I always slipped. I would always go back out for more field research, as Paul likes to say. And I did that for quite a few years before I finally, finally in 2019 is when I finally decided, you know what, I am sick of sick of being sick and tired. I'm sick of doing this. I'm sick of letting my family down. I'm sick of, you know, the way my family looks at me every time I do, you know, do what they know I'm going to do, which is let them down. And I just decided to pray one day and I prayed to God, my higher power, that I just, I wanted to stop. I didn't want to do this anymore. And I just prayed that he would take that desire to drink from me. And I honestly believe that day that he took that desire. And I've now been sober for about two years, seven months. So coming up on three years, and I honestly have no desire to drink. I still think about it, you know, just like anybody does. I still have those fleeting thoughts or memories, I guess you could call it, but I honestly don't have that desire to drink anymore. I actually have the desire to stay sober and i just want to continue to be in active recovery and help other people at this point that's that's basically my story
2: oh my god hearing i i'm just grateful that you are willing to share all of this because it's a lot you know from how you were raised and your upbringing with foster parents to having massive surgeries relatively at a young age considering and having kids and it's a lot and you compacted that in a way where you know, you're kind of coming from the place of like, this is where I'm at now. And I I feel like you can now look back and look at everything that happened and just be very proud, I hope. But I do have some questions in terms of like certain points in your journey. I know you said, you know, that you were someone who was sneaking and your drinking ramp ramped up, you know, once your first child was a little bit older and then your second surprise kiddo came along. So When you were starting with these behaviors that were a little bit more abnormal, like the sneaking, what was the dialogue inside of your mind? Like, were you aware of what you were doing or were you kind of in it and just going through the motions? Yeah, I I definitely
1: think I was aware of what I was doing. I knew what I was doing because I could see what it was doing to my family. I knew that, you know, my husband knew what I was doing. He was like I said, he was not a drinker. He was a normie definitely could just drink one and then be done with it. And so I, I definitely saw what it was doing to him, what it was doing to my son, my, even my daughter, as little as she was at the time, she knew what I was doing. She, she could figure it out. She would ask to, you know, have a sip of my drink and I'd say, no, that's a mommy drink. Well, what the heck is a mommy drink? (laughs) You know, you kind of know they, they know they're a lot smarter than we give them credit for.
2: Yeah, I know you said your husband went to Al-Anon and Al-Anon, for those who are listening and aren't familiar, it's similar to AAA, but the meetings are held for loved ones of people who are struggling with addiction. So other than that experience where he came home and had the big book to hand to you, what was the type of dialogue or commentary that he had on your drinking? Would he get upset at you? Would he just come from a place of concern? Did How did he bring it up if he brought it up?
1: Oh yeah. In the very beginning, he was upset all the time. He would, you know, basically ask me why, why do you drink as much as you do? Why do you feel that you have to drink every night? And I, I never had answers. It was just, I just want to, I, I would always tell him I like to drink. I like the taste, which I don't know how much of that was true. I think I, at that point, just, I was definitely addicted to it. I felt like I needed it to function and he just didn't understand that. And I didn't know how to, how to explain it to him that, It was just, it felt like something I had to do every day. Even if I had the best of intentions not to drink, I would tell myself, I'm not going to drink today, or I'm only going to drink, you know, one glass of wine. Sure enough, it was always more. I always gave in to that little voice in my head telling me to drink more.
2: Yeah. And I often think about how we make these decisions of moderating or these decisions and negotiations with ourselves when we're sober but then the moment the alcohol is like running through our veins that just gets clouded and it's so much easier to kind of betray your own decisions once you're already under the influence so it's just really hard because it's basically just like a us against ourselves battle all the time and it's exhausting it is it was very exhausting Yeah. In terms of how you were feeling, like, were there any physical or emotional symptoms that were starting to, you know, really take a toll on you? How was your sleep? Did you have any other mental health issues, like maybe anxiety through the night? How was, how was the alcohol taking a toll on you before you decided to quit?
1: Oh my gosh. I definitely, I had, well, I I had major depression as a child all the way through, gosh, I mean, as long as I can remember And then when I was pregnant with my daughter, I definitely had postpartum after having her. So that postpartum coupled with, you know, my, what I call my other depression, it just kind of, it all just came, came at me at once. And for, for me inside my head to deal with what the thoughts were in my head, I, I turned to the alcohol. So for me, I would think, I just don't know how to deal with all the crazy thoughts in my head, all the craziness going on up there. So I would just drink to try and keep it quiet, try to stuff it down. Basically sleeping. Oh my gosh. I was terrible at sleeping. I I still am even almost three years into it. I, I do sleep better now, but I was definitely someone who would stay up past when the whole rest of the house would go to bed. And I would stay up for hours drinking and just watching TV, just doing nothing. I mean, not doing anything constructive, just sitting there drinking, 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 trying to get tired enough to fall asleep. And then I would get up in the morning, go to work, do it all over again. Just craziness.
2: Isn't it crazy when you get out of it, wondering how was I sustaining that? Like I think about it a lot with my eating disorder too. I'm like, how did I do it? Like day after day after day, it's insane.
1: It's crazy. The anxiety and the depression- definitely got worse and worse. The more I drank, the more I felt anxious, the more I felt depressed. And even though I knew that in my head, that these two things don't mix together, I still just continued to do it. It's like, gosh, this is making me so anxious and depressed. Maybe I should stop. No, maybe I should drink more. That's what I would tell myself. Maybe it'll get better if I just drink more. It never got better.
2: Yeah. It's, it's hard to get off the roller coaster, because we get so seduced by the effects of it, that it's hard to just stay in one lane and, and stay committed mm-hmm. to to deciding, you know, the mental gymnastics. And like, I always like asking people how exhausted they were, because for me, it's like, it's so draining to feel like you're two people at the okay. same time. And for me, like, I, I can't even it feels so out of my alignment. I can't really explain it. It just, there's this like ickiness to it that is just fueling to the shame. And it just, it just feels so awful. I I'm a happy when people are able to get off that roller coaster because it's very draining in ways that maybe you can't see or explain.
1: Yeah, that's a hundred percent right. That makes total sense to me. I just, Oh my gosh, just the hiding was, that was It was so much to hide all the time, to hide what I was doing. I would hide my purse because I had things hidden in there. I would hide things around the house. And if my husband would even walk by it, I would freak out. Oh, my God, he's going to know that there's that I hid something in the pantry or I hid something there. It was just exhausting trying to remember where did I hide things? Did I already drink that? You know, just the memory would be gone. And it was it was constant craziness within my own head.
2: And, you know, when you had that aha moment, it sounds like you had more of an aha moment versus a rock bottom because it was prayer and faith and really that like surrender that we hear about quite often. You know, what happened after that moment that you shared? What what followed that? Oh, my gosh. So when I finally, like I said, got sick and
1: tired of doing what I was doing And I just, I went in my closet one day, which was the spot where I always had my hidden bottles everywhere. I mean, I hid it in shoes, in pants, you name it. My closet was just the spot where I would hide. I'd hide my alcohol. I went in there one day and I just sat on the floor and I just prayed, just basically just asked God, please take this away from me. I don't want to do this anymore. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. And I, I feel like he honestly told me Okay, I'll take this away from you, but you have to be open. You have to be you have to tell people what you're going through and stop isolating. To me, that was scarier than actually stopping the whole, you know, thought of not isolating and talking to people. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to talk to people and tell them what I was going through. I was that person that would go to an AA meeting like every day and never talk. You never heard me share. I never never spoke at a meeting until that, that day, I think I went to an AA meeting the next day and I spoke because I felt like he was telling me to speak like, all right, I will give this a shot. I've tried everything else. If he tells me I need to be open and tell others what I'm going through, then that's what I'm going to do. And so I slowly started doing that. I started talking. I started telling my husband a little bit more, you know, instead of just going in that closet to hide I would go in the closet with my Bible or with my daily devotionals or whatever it was and I would just go in there and instead of that time I would take to drink I would go in there and read or start writing and start journaling. So I tried to I tried to fill my time with what I thought he was trying to get me to do which was share. It was hard to share at first to other people so I started sharing in my journal and just writing down what I was feeling. And that has become a huge tool to me is just sharing in my journal when I don't necessarily feel like talking to my husband or to, you know, an accountability partner or a friend. Sometimes I'll just write it down in my journal and get it out that way instead of, you know, reacting by wanting to drink or get in the car and go to the store kind of thing. That's what I used to do. Now I'm trying to do other things like write and talk to someone. That's hard. That's hard to come
2: out of your shell like that. That's what I was going to say, you know, acting in ways that are so different from how we normally acted. is hard, especially when it's a habit and it's ingrained and you, you know, you are doing it without even thinking. And all of a sudden you have to learn how to pause and feel your feelings and slow right. down. And for a min- for many people like that, that just takes time that there's a reason why a lot of people are, in a cycle of day one for a long time, or, you know, a couple of days and then back because it is it is hard to kind of retrain your brain.
1: It is very hard. Your brain is
2: just (laughs) your brain is mush. And then mine on
1: top of the drinking, I had a stroke. So I felt like I had double whammy against me. So yeah, it, it takes a lot to get back to some sort of normal normalcy.
2: Yeah. Was going to meetings something that you went to normally or how did that continue to play a role in your recovery and what other resources did you start picking up
1: Uh, for the first few years before I got real serious, I would go to meetings pretty much every day or every other day. But again, like I said, I never shared. I mean, I would talk if someone talked to me, but I would never just openly share something or talk about my story. I always kept it inside. I would go to CR meeting, celebrate recovery with my husband, and they have very similar, they have like different groups for whatever your issues are, like anxiety or uh, depression, codependency, that kind of thing. So I would go to the addictive behaviors group. And that was probably the first place I actually shared and decided to you know, let someone else know what I was going through other than my husband or my journal. And I shared a few different times and then other women would share or talk to me afterwards. And I was starting to see that, wow, I'm not the only one that's dealing with this, or I'm not the only, you know, Christian that deals. Cause I thought, you know, I was unique. There's not another Christian that deals with this or a mom that's like me, or, you know, I, you always think you're the only one that goes through what you're going through until you actually start talking. Once I started talking, I was realizing, wow, there's so many people just like me. So I think CR that became the first safe place for me where I started talking. And then once, once I felt comfortable there, then I slowly started to open up at AA a little bit.
2: Yeah. It, it, it takes time, but like you said, when you do get out of your shell, you get out of that uh, terminal uniqueness, as you say, and you find so many commonalities and, I feel like it's until that moment where we have the courage to share and kind of find those common wounds, then we're able to kind of start, you know, shredding the shame because otherwise we may not be drinking, but it's still like we're carrying it all by ourselves. And, you know, I don't know what, like, other than just not drinking, what else did you notice that were like things that you were holding on to that, like, maybe had nothing to do with the drinking, but they are you know, a part of the journey. It's not just about quitting drinking. Oh
1: gosh. I was still holding on to just my past, my childhood, you know, all the trauma that I had gone through as a child. I'm, I'm still addressing that now in sobriety. And, um, when I was actively drinking, I didn't address it. I just would drink to cover up what I was feeling now feeling all this, all the feelings and being sober while doing it. Ugh. It sucks, (laughs) you know, I mean, I don't, I don't like it, but it does feel better doing it with a clear mind and thinking things through instead of just reacting with a drink. Now I'm, I reach out to people, you know, I talk to others that have gone through similar situations. And the only way I have found those other people is, is by speaking or talking to others and getting to know people. I know the first time I shared on um, on social media about sobriety, oh my gosh, I was scared to death. I'm thinking I'm not going to have any friends. Everyone's going to unfriend me. Like Nobody wants to hear about this kind of stuff now. Oh my gosh, in the last two years, that's pretty much all, not all I share about, but I either share about sobriety, recovery, my kids, my family, dogs. You know, but I'm I'm not ashamed to share it anymore. I'll tell anybody that wants to hear it, what I'm doing or how I'm doing it, how I've done it. It's no longer shameful to me. Now it's I'm excited to share and I want others to know that they can do it, too.
2: Yeah, you know, it goes from being in that place of shame to being empowering and to also being able to provide Service to other people just by sharing and and talking about it, and then you never know when a conversation that has nothing to do with sobriety ends up going in that direction. It's it's really cool. I feel like what kind of starts to happen in our surroundings and in our environment and in the people that we interact with. It, it there's this like weird synchronicity that starts happening. I don't know if it's alignment or or what it is, but it it starts feeling really good after it's hard for a while.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I I even started taking my, my journal entries that I had, and I felt like that pull to start a blog. I'm thinking, what right do I have? I don't have, I don't have any type of writing skills. Who cares what I have to say? But again, it was that voice inside me, that you know, God telling me, why not you go ahead and write a blog? So I started a blog. I thought, even if one person gets something out of it, I'm gonna do it because I feel like, you know, even though I think I don't always have anything good to share, somebody out there can benefit or can relate to what I have to share. So I try to, I try to, I'm trying to listen to that inside voice now, because it's, I feel like it's God talking to me now. It's not my drunk inside voice now. It's the good voice now.
2: What would you consider to be like the biggest challenge you've encountered since not drinking? Oh, my gosh,
1: I would think the biggest challenge for me has been, again, um, ignoring that that voice inside me that wants to tell me that I'm not good enough or that, you know, one's not going to hurt. Or maybe you can drink normally now trying to make sure I don't listen to that old voice has been has been a challenge.
2: Yes, I hear you. But I mean, it sounds like you're doing so much inner work and it does sound like that moment where you prayed continues to be powerful and continues to kind of keep you on track. Would you say that's okay? Like, how often do you think about that moment? Is it a big motivator for you? Oh, my gosh, it's a huge motivator. I mean, I've changed everything
1: about my daily life now based on that moment. Now, every day I get up at four o'clock, I get up purposely 45 minutes early before I need to so that I, I've turned my closet into a prayer closet. So where I used to go and hide my alcohol, now I have it covered in pretty lights and candles and a little chair and like my daily devotionals, my Bible. I go in there and I journal and I spend 45 minutes in the morning before work by myself still in isolation, but now it's a good isolation. I'm I'm working on, on myself. So I do that every morning. And I feel like, I mean, that's, that's a huge difference for me to do something like that.
2: Yeah. You basically have adjusted everything, like you said, and, and it just proves to show that because of alcohol, so much has changed. And sometimes we don't think that it's because of alcohol. Even I, I heard you mention something about your stroke and like, obviously it won't be Fully confirmed by the doctors, but there's like this inner knowing of like it kind of did have to do with everything that is going on in our lives.
1: Definitely. Definitely. I'm sure it had a lot to do. I'm sure my drinking did not help anything. I mean, having you would think having open heart surgery that would be like an eye opener. Hey, maybe I should stop drinking. No, to me, that was just, oh, I just need to get home and get back to drinking.
2: That's like crazy thinking. Who thinks that? an alcoholic does. Yeah. It's that dissonance, you know, and getting back out in the world socially, like what happens when Shereen, like you go to an event or a party and uh, people offer you drinking, like, how is that social interaction for you and how has it changed in the last two years? Oh my gosh. So in the last two and a half years,
1: my husband and I have taken, let's see, I think three vacations. And two of the vacations, his work provided for him, and they were two all-inclusive resorts in Mexico. I mean, I'm talking alcohol just everywhere. And I had no problem turning it away, asking for seltzer, you know, Coke Zero, anything. I had so much fun. And to be around, you know, the drunk people and watch them, I would think to myself, is this what I looked like? these people are not having fun. They're getting sick. They're acting stupid, saying stupid things. I don't miss that at all.
2: Yeah. It's really nice to hear that, like, instead of a FOMO that a lot of us experience perhaps more at the beginning, it's more of a turnoff, which for me, like, I think the most that I can relate to what you shared is concerts. You know, where when mm-hmm. there's, I think we went to a concert once a couple years ago and the people around me were just completely hammered and like i was not able to enjoy the show and i felt like uncomfortable because they were dancing and stepping on my feet you know and it's like it does feel sometimes like oh my god i was probably one of those people right. but i think that for many of us there is like a, a a stretch of time where it you do think you're missing out that seems to like not be a part of your journey no, I don't,
1: I don't feel like I'm missing out, but I think awesome. a lot of that also has to do with who I surround myself with now. Yes, I mean, now I am, I'm very, very involved in CR the celebrate recovery program. I go and I speak to churches. Now I'm actually going tonight to a church out in Phoenix to share my testimony, which is just basically what I'm doing right now, just sharing my story. So just trying to help other people that have dealt with similar situations And again, alcoholism is not my only issue. I've got depression, anxiety, you know, childhood trauma. So now I I surround myself with other people that can benefit from what I have to share, and I don't shy away from sharing it anymore like I used to.
2: How has your relationship with your husband changed? I'm sure he's extremely proud of you and is benefiting from from this new Shireen. So how did that tip from him going to Al-Anon and getting upset to seeing you now in this new phase? Oh, my gosh. I mean, he's
1: always stuck by my side and just I might get a little emotional on you. <laughs> That's OK. He's, he, you know, he was definitely Sorry again, just he's he's a normal drinker, so he never understood it. He would ask me questions, you know why I never had the answers to explain it, but we definitely we have a very close relationship now. I think that our marriage has been restored. I mean, i gosh, I didn't know I was getting get so emotional.
2: no, it's okay. It is really rough, especially especially when, like you said, it, if he doesn't have the same issues sometimes it happens to me and my relationship, you know, then it's like, you don't want to feel misunderstood. You want to feel supported. It's so complex. Mm -hmm. And you guys have been together for a long time. So kudos to him, because honestly, that's just the nature of relationships. They're ever changing. We never, it never is like, oh, you're the same person as you were years ago. We're always changing. And I think that, you know, it speaks volumes of him believing in you and also giving you like permission to, to change, which I think is very hard in some relationships.
1: I agree. I, I feel, I mean, we've, we've grown up together. We've been together since high school. We were kids and we grew up as adults together. So we've been through every phase of life, you know, together.
2: He's, he's my person. He's, he's been amazing. Oh, that makes me really happy, you know, and I know that your kids are a little bit older than mine. And I always like kind of commenting and asking this to parents, you know, is. This is something that I obviously know that they noticed that you don't drink anymore because you said they noticed that you did. So is it something that has striked conversation within you guys like, oh, why aren't you drinking now, mom? Or talking about addiction as a whole to kind of like shred the shame. How is that conversation at home for you guys? Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. I talk to my kids. I mean, my daughter, who's 12,
1: she knows my story. I've shared it with her. She understands what I'm doing now by going out and you know talking to other people and sharing my story. We have a very open dialogue about you know drink drinking, you know growing up in the '80s versus her growing up now, all the differences, and I make sure that she knows that she can come to me about any any type of issue because I certainly never had that type of relationship growing up with my parents, and then um, with my son he's, he's actually um, gone gone to one of the CRs and listened to my story. But I mean, I feel like my kids have lived it. They've lived my story with me because they were there. They were part of it. Now they're seeing my part of my story that I'm better, you know, I'm doing right by them, by my husband, by myself, obviously. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they're, they're definitely involved in every area.
2: I love that. You know, you now you can say how I, the phrase that I always like using, you know, that recovery runs in your family. And I mean, living in the solution is the best thing we could do. I feel like sometimes I get fearful for my kids, but all I can do is just continue to be, you know, and continue to have these conversations and continue to do the next right thing as Chris always says too. So hopefully, hopefully that'll rub off on our, on our kids.
1: (laughs) Oh, I, I know it's rubbed off. I I hear my kids say certain things sometimes. I'm like, they heard that from you. I hear certain things in the rooms and I'll come home and say it. And then when I've heard my own children say the same things, I'm like, yeah, they're, they're definitely catching on to, you know, to this recovery thing.
2: What are you doing or what other tools that serve your sobriety also serve, you know, your other struggles? I know you've mentioned depression and I know you had some trauma growing up how do you take care of yourself? Because it is not just about alcohol, you know, what, what tools are in your toolbox that help you kind of take care of overall uh, mental health? I've definitely reached out into the online
1: world as far as, you know, my other issues that I deal with. I'm part of many different support groups, you know, depression groups, childhood trauma groups, that kind of thing. And then again, with my church, with the CR program, I go to grief group, I go to um, sexual abuse group, you know, that kind of thing. So I have different, different avenues that I I reach into and try to pull information from that will help me in the things that I'm going through. And then again, that daily prayer closet where I go and I, I mean, I have daily devotionals that have to do with the AA side or that have to do with the depression side of things. And I just try to fill my mind with with good stuff now instead of bad stuff.
2: Yeah. You know, a lot of it is recovery as a whole, and there are these commonalities, but I'm really happy to hear that you have found specific groups because it is different uh, in some ways and the same in many ways as well. And I do feel like, you know, co-occurring disorders are common. And, you know, I thought that by not drinking, maybe I could like not be in touch with my eating disorder community. And I've realized as time goes by that I also have to stay in touch there because there are other issues that maybe don't play a role in sobriety. So it's, it's a lot. So I'm just really happy to hear that you're being active in kind of taking care of all of the wobbles. Definitely. And,
1: and showing my daughter that you know, again, she knows my story. She knows what I've been through, and she deals with a lot of mental, um, mental issues herself. She's going through a lot of depression. I mean, I I remember being 12. I can't imagine being 12 in 2000, you know, 2022. And she talks to me about you know depression, about anxiety, stuff that she deals with that she knows that I have dealt with. So we have a very open line of communication there, and I feel like there's things that I've learned that I can help her, you know, by sharing with her. And I want, I want to make sure that she always knows she can come to me versus, you know, going to school and talking to her friends who, of course they want to do that too. But a lot of those friends are struggling with the same kinds of things that she's struggling with. And if they have other people like their own parents who have struggled with similar things, then, you know, they have those safe people to go to, to talk to instead of just trying to deal with it on their own like I felt I did when I was a kid.
2: Well, yeah, the fact that you are normalizing talking about mental health normalizes it for them and and you know, allows them to kind of like not stay in the closet with these issues that for many of us, I mean for me I know how hard it was. Eventually I got there when I was a little bit older, but you know, there's, there's two ways you can look at it. If you struggle with it and then you beat yourself up about it and then your kids struggle with it, you could get really down about it because man, like the cards that we were dealt, or you could look at it the way that you're living in it, which is you are empowering her and letting her know that it's normal, that it happens. And this is what you can do about it. So I just, I love hearing this because the solution, I think when you're a parent with, mental health issues and addiction issues, you're not going to be able to prevent it. It's more so how are you going to react if and when it, it happens? And I feel like you're doing a really good job at that. Exactly. And I've asked her, you know, do
1: you feel like you need someone to talk to? Because I know not every kid wants to talk to their parents, especially girls talking to their moms. And so we've reached out and got a counselor that she's comfortable with. And, you know, I, I make sure she knows that she can always talk to me. But if she doesn't want, want to talk to me, that's totally fine. That's why we got her a counselor so she can talk to her about the stuff that she doesn't feel comfortable talking to me about. So at least she has more than you know one avenue to go to. Like for me, it was just go drink. Now I feel like for her, I'm giving her other other resources that she can use too.
2: Yeah, I love that. And that you don't have to be the solution to everything. I feel like delegating as moms is hard because you think, why, why can't I, why can't she talk to me? But I think that you're really humble in allowing her to have other people that she can use as an outlet. And I think that really is awesome. So thank you so much, Irene. She has a, she is a great mom. I'm really, I'm really happy to hear all of this and thank we you. have reached the rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay what are you excited about right now?
1: Oh my gosh. I'm
2: excited about life. I
1: honestly, I'm excited, excited to share my story. Whenever I'm asked, I'm excited to stay sober. I'm excited about just living.
2: If you could talk to Shireen on day one or when you were younger, what would you say? Don't give up. What book are you reading right now? If
1: any Oh my gosh. I love reading. I love listening to audiobooks. I am reading. Oh my gosh. It's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. I've heard that's really good. Yes, that's really good. I'm reading that one. And the audio book that I'm listening to is <laughs> Sober as F. <laughs> which is really funny. And I like listening to, I like listening to stuff when I'm working. And then there's another one. I'm, I knew you were going to ask this and I was going to write it down. And of course I didn't. The other one I'm reading, I cannot think of the name right now.
2: We got Mm -hmm. a couple good ones in. Yeah. They're all recovery based. I know that. (laughs) What's your favorite ice cream flavor, Shireen?
1: Oh my gosh. Chocolate peanut butter.
2: Yum. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze?
1: Don't give up. Just keep trying. Don't think that you're not good enough or you're, you know, you're, you're too messed up for it. Just keep trying, never give up.
2: And before we depart, can you give listeners your own, you may have to say adios to booze if line.
1: Oh my gosh. So if you go into a circle K every morning and the clerk has your booze, already at the cash register before you get there, granted, this is 5.30 a.m. in the morning, then you might have a problem.
2: Ooh, yeah,
1: you are a VIP
2: client in not the best <laughs> way. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, Irene, thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to air this and have our listeners hear your story and learn from you. I appreciate you. So thank you.
1: Thank you. I appreciate you too. And I appreciate this, this podcast. It's been tremendous a tremendous tool for me.
2: Oh, thank you. Take care. You too.
1: Bye-bye. Okay.
2: Very well, Timari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to remind you that we can do hard things. You all know that I love Glennon Doyle. This is one of her taglines. But I thought about something else the other day. We can't do hard things and be hard on ourselves. It's already hard enough as it is. We all have our own personal challenges and we're all trying to find our way in this alcohol-free life. So it doesn't really help if you're already going up a mountain and you're also beating yourself up for it. So I just wanted to remind you to choose yourself and to choose kindness and to be your own cheerleader. This is my motif for this end of the season that is coming up. You know, root for yourself. I am not saying that negative thoughts won't pop up into your mind, they will. Just be mindful of them. You know, I remember when I started using meditation apps, one of the speakers that I was listening to kept saying, just imagine that you're sitting at a bus station and your negative thoughts, or any thoughts for that matter, are the buses that are coming and leaving. So be the observer, sit back on the bench and observe. And if it's a negative thought, choose to wave it off and let it go. I know that this is hard. I know that this is much easier said than done, but the work starts with the awareness around these thoughts and acknowledging that you can take action and that you can choose to not fuse to these thoughts. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, we are here for you. Don't quit quitting. I love you guys.
3: How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. In the seeing of who you are not, not. the reality of who you are, emerges by itself. Life isn't as serious as my mind makes it out to be. Being must be felt. It can't be thought. About. Your inner purpose is to awaken. the world with words and labels. A sense of the miraculous returns to your life that was lost a long time ago when humanity, instead of using thought, became possessed by thought. The word I embodies the greatest error and the deepest truth, depending on how it is used. In normal everyday usage, I, Is the primordial error a misperception of who you are, an illusory sense of identity? This is the ego.